This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for ATC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to atcmedia.org. Today, our author is Hugo, Nebula, and Arthur C. Clarke award-winning science fiction writer Anne Leckie. We spoke with her in December of 2017, shortly after the release of her book, Provenance, part of the ancillary universe of books from publisher Orbit that made her beloved by the readers of the science fiction genre. This New York Times bestselling author's rise to sci-fi stardom began with her first novel, Ancillary Justice, in 2013 and kicked off her award-winning career. The Imperial Rots trilogy continued with Ancillary Sword in 2014 and Ancillary Mercy in 2015 and featured sharply tuned characters dealing with ancient alien cultures. And while Provenance is set on the other side of the same universe as the Ancillary books, Leckie wrote the protagonist, Ingray, with an atypical attitude for lead in that world, one that may be more relatable to most of us down here on Earth. Science fiction and adventure stories in particular tend to like those hyper-competent heroes, right? Because you're going to go and beat up the aliens and do all the things you need to do, and, and then as a reader you're like, yeah, I can be like that, really heroic. But in real life, most of us are kind of like, oh, can we do this or not? I have to be a grown-up, and I don't know if I can be a grown-up right now. Am I strong enough to be a grown-up, right? We'll learn about that new tack on a sci-fi hero and the change of focus to antiquity smuggling and forgery in Roch space. Plus, we'll hear about the real-world road taken by Anne Leckie to the world she creates on this episode of Talking with Authors from ATC Media and ATC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Brenda Madden. Anne Leckie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're one of our first authors in a while who's a hometown girl. I sure am. Yeah, I grew up here. My parents moved here when I was about a year old. And you're still... Yep, still live here. You fell in love with science fiction very young. Yes. Yeah, I'm really... I have no idea why, but I absolutely did. There was just something about space and aliens and... Yeah. I've heard you tell a story about going to see... uh, was it 2001? It was 2001. The adult who was responsible for me that weekend wanted to see it. was a special engagement. I was like four and uh, wanted to see it and didn't have anybody to look after me. They were supposed to look after me. And so they took little four-year-old me to the theater. And I have never forgotten it. That, what kind that of transformative has, moment for a four-year-old must that have been? Oh, well, you know, there are adults. There are grown adults who watch that movie and have no idea what's going on. I was four years old. I, I didn't have a chance, right? Yeah. What did it spark in you? I don't, I, to, to be 100% sure, I don't know. I think it kind of sort of lay dormant for a long time. Uh, but more recently, when I've looked back at some of my favorite science fictional characters have been uh, androids and artificial intelligences. And of course, the main character of the trilogy uh, is basically an artificial intelligence. Uh, and so I wonder if that doesn't trace all the way back to Hal, to that, that moment where uh, Hal's being shut down, which is a really strong, it's a really uh, 
it's, it's a moment with a huge amount of emotional impact, even if you don't know what's going on in the plot. You, even when you're a little kid sitting in the audience and don't know what's going on, that moment really stands out. And I'm sure that kind of stuck there and sort of fermented into things that I did later. So the new book is Providence. Your first book outside of your blockbuster, nobody saw it coming trilogy that just changed your life. It's, it's kind of scary. In some ways, it's like doing a second book because the trilogy is sort of one big work. Uh, everybody was waiting for me to finish the trilogy. Now the trilogy is done. People are like, well, now what's she going to do? And, uh, but in some ways, it was kind of nice to be done with that trilogy because I love those characters a lot. I had to love them, to spend three books with them. But that's a big project. I spent a lot of time with them, and I wanted to do something very, very different. Uh, and it was a little scary because I know some folks, uh, understandably, want more of the same. They want more of the same thing that they enjoyed with the trilogy. As a reader, I totally understand that. As a writer, I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> So it's a new story, but it's in the same, would I say, universe? In the same universe, yeah. yeah. Tell us a, a, about that universe, too, because it's, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> oh, so it, it, uh, uh, the title taken from the trilogy is the Imperial Roch trilogy. That is uh, so not how I would have said that either. I'm so glad you <laughs> said okay. that. That's okay. I get asked all the time, how do you say this name? How do you say that name? And the official answer is that I say it in this particular way, but Raj space is really huge. Uh, there's lots of space outside Raj space. There are lots of regional dialects and accents, and however you say it is probably right somewhere, right? That's my official. Uh, but uh, Providence takes place outside Rajai space, uh, so the characters that are in the trilogy aren't concerned, although they're sort of mentioned in the background. Some of the, the current events and the news that's coming as a result of the trilogy is talked about in part of Providence. But that's really just to sort of ground readers who are familiar with it. You don't need to know it uh, to understand Providence. Uh, and so this is set not in Raj space, but in Hui, which is a, a world that it is run with a, an elective democracy, basically. So they elect representatives to their, to their, uh, their legislative bodies. Uh, and elections become an issue in the, in the story. But they also really strongly value vestiges, which are sort of almost like souvenirs, like mementos of their ancestors, and they're what uh, any any like wealthy family would display them and say, you know, this is a this is a the signature of our or the founder of our family, and these this is a shirt that they wore, and this is that uh, that kind of says who you are. But they also have vestiges on a larger scale for the society itself, uh, and of course the plot revolves around the forgery and theft of important vestiges. What caused you to want to examine that, the vestiges and the artifacts and the things that we sort of assign meaning and power to? Uh, what were you trying to explore? Well, I actually started uh, thinking that I wanted to write a story about one of my favorite space opera tropes, which is uh, the ancient alien archaeology, the ancient alien mysterious artifact, uh, and the archaeological dig on the alien planet. I said, that'll be really cool. Uh, and so I started to do research, which is usually where I start. I go, okay, let me read about my topic. And I ended off getting sidetracked into uh, antiquity smuggling and the history of museums and forgery. And that just became super fascinating. And so I started thinking of characters and plots that related to that instead of the archaeology. So that was, I actually didn't start wanting to do that. I just sort of got sidetracked into it. But it's a, it's a really fascinating topic. 
And the character who drives the story is in gray. Yes. Tell us about her. She's, she's a young woman, maybe in her 20s, who uh, she's the adopted daughter of uh, a political mother, uh, someone who is serving uh, as a legislator, uh, and who has a couple of kids, but who encourages those kids to be competitive with each other, because only one of them can inherit her position. Uh, and But Ingre has always felt as though she doesn't really belong. She's not good enough. Uh, Her brother was adopted from a a wealthy family. She herself was adopted as an orphan from a public crush. Uh, And she feels like she's not brilliant enough. She's not beautiful enough. She's not strong enough. She's not smart enough. But she has to somehow hold her own in this family. Uh, she really has a terrible case of imposter syndrome because she's far much more skilled and stronger than she realizes. And that's part of what happens during the course of the book, of course, is that she realizes she is actually stronger and more skilled than she thinks she is. Uh, and I kind of, she she appealed to me because the main character of the trilogy was very hyper-competent, just Breck could do anything. Breck decided to do something, and Breck was going to do it, and had no doubts about it. And I said, well, what, who would be as different from Breck as possible? And then I thought, oh, somebody, somebody with serious imposter syndrome, plus science fiction and adventure stories in particular tend to like those hyper-competent heroes, right? Because you're going to go and beat up the aliens and do all the things you need to do, and, and then as a reader, you're like, yeah, I can be like that, really heroic. But in real life, most of us are kind of like, oh, can we do this or not? I have to be a grown-up, and I don't know if I can be a grown-up right now. Am I strong enough to be a grown-up, right? And, uh, and yet we all muddle through every day. And I thought, Fake it you know, till you make it. Right. right. I, I thought, maybe, maybe we deserve to be a hero for once, yeah. She starts out seeking power, as you said, and position and an advantage. But through the course of the story, she's come around to a different... She's learned a lot. She's learned a lot. She's learned by the end of the story. She's learned that actually maybe she doesn't want what she thought she wanted to begin with and that she's a stronger person than she thought she was uh, and that she can use her abilities to better effect by doing something else than what she thought. Uh, and uh, I think that's kind of an important thing to, to realize sometimes. Sometimes uh, we'll have a goal and it'll seem like you have to have that thing. You have to accomplish whatever that is. And maybe, actually, it's not the thing that will be best for you that you really want. You get there, you find out maybe that it's empty, that it's not going to give you what you thought it was going to give you, and doing something else might be better. Sometimes sometimes having something cut off, sometimes having an avenue closed to you is actually a benefit in the long run. It doesn't feel like it at the time. But sometimes that's the case. Sometimes you're better off in a different situation. You get asked a lot about the pronoun question. Uh, in the trilogy, the default pronoun was... Was she. She. Yes. In Provenance, it's very gender neutral. It's E. Well, so or, in, the, in the trilogy, in, the, in, the, in Provenance, there isn't a default pronoun, so Right. To speak. It's a... It's a, yeah, in, yeah, in, in the, yeah, in the trilogy, uh, it was a society that just didn't care about gender at all and didn't talk about it and didn't worry about it. And I used that default pronoun partly to depict that. Uh, in the, in Provenance, uh, this is a culture that doesn't see gender as a binary. They see gender as a trinary. So, of course, you're either a man or a woman or a nemen. And uh, in this society, children are considered to be genderless and take the pronoun they. And when you get to be like in your late teens, early 20s, you, uh, you 
you declare your adult name and you declare your gender. And so uh, the characters in the book are one of three genders. Uh, and uh, so I use the pronoun E, E M R, for uh, folks who are that third gender in the. And I, I did that because partly because I dealt with gender in the trilogy by just kind of wiping it away, right? Uh, but gender is kind of a complicated topic, which I sort of discovered while I was writing the trilogy. And I wanted to acknowledge that. The way we look at gender is very much uh, the way our culture looks at gender. Uh, and thousands of years in the future, why would they see it the same way? There are any number of other ways to, to do that, to look at that. That created a lot of attention. It's a big part of the discussion around your books. Is that what you wanted, or did it, did it end up being a bigger thing than you ever expected? It ended up being a bigger thing than I expected. I did expect the use of default she to make the book uh, I, I thought that was a big part of why I, I didn't think an editor would want to buy it. Uh, and that was what surprised me. Uh, but it surprised me the number of folks who talked about the book as though that's what the books were about, when to me those were a world-building detail. I was trying to build a culture that had these particular ideas and tendencies uh, and used that to, to kind of express that. And it, using she as a default pronoun had a really interesting effect on me as the writer, and I really enjoyed that. And I said, well, I, I'm going to stick with that. Uh, and not, not to make any point, but because I really loved the effect. And it really surprised me the amount of conversation that that generated. And I think, uh, I think it's mostly been good to hear the conversation, the pros and the cons and people talking about it. It's really been super interesting. And such a great example of how art can can really spark something so relevant in our lives. Oh, well, I, I think that stories in particular are really powerful. They're how, we, they're how we organize the world around us. And the kinds of stories that we have to use to match up to events, that's really important because it, it helps determine what we do and what choices we make. Coming up in a moment, we hear more from Anne Leckie and the choices she makes as a writer when she's trying to create her science fiction worlds. Plus, she'll tell us about her improbable rocket-like ride into the universe of published authors. So I sent out and very quickly got responses back. Within a month or two, I had representation, which astonished me. And so he took the novel out on submission. And within several months, I sold the novel to Orbit. I thought, they're, they're giving me this, they're cutting me a check right? And that's just money down the drain for them. This, if I'm lucky, this book is going to sell, what, a couple thousand copies. That incorrect prediction and Anne Leckie's place in the history of women in science fiction writing when talking with authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. Your bio humorously refers to all the different jobs you've had. So starting with that, how did it all happen for you? So uh, weirdly, I was extraordinarily lucky in that my parents were convinced from when I was quite small that I was going to be a writer someday. And so they would talk to me about fiction and about my writing as though I was going to be a professional writer. Just the assumption was that I could do it and I was going to do it. Um, and that, that's a tremendous, that's a huge gift. But it was a very long time before I felt actually confident enough to sit down and try and write something. Um, 
So it wasn't really, I actually sold a story while I was shortly after college to True Confessions. I don't know if you remember True Confessions. Um, and I thought, oh, this is great, so I can do this again. But I discovered I really didn't like that kind of story. I had only, there was tons of it at the, at the drugstore, right? That was why I picked them up. And uh, that was an important lesson where I learned there's no point spending a lot of time writing something that I don't enjoy. There's nothing wrong with that kind of story. It was just it wasn't my thing. So it was some years after that before I finally said, well, I'm going to sit down and write. And actually what started it, uh, I had little kids. And I discovered very quickly that uh, childcare was going to cost way more than my paycheck almost immediately. So we were gonna, I was going to have to stay home for the jobs that I could get. And you mentioned the jobs in my bio. I was working as a, a temporary receptionist. I was working as a rodman on a land surveying crew. I was waiting tables. This wasn't something that was going you know, to pay for childcare. So I ended up staying home. And my kids, my kids were the most adorable toddlers in the history of toddlers. There's no question about it, and I'll fight you. But they were not very intellectually stimulating company. And I began to feel like my brains were leaking out my ears. And uh, some of my friends on the, the internet almost saved my life because I could talk to adults during the day. And some of my friends on the internet were like, we're going to do NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, which is November. It will have just finished up. Uh, people write 50,000 words of a novel in the course of 30 days. And I said, what the heck, I'll try that. Uh, and I did that. Uh, I did it while my, uh, while my daughter was at preschool and my son was napping and uh, managed to win when winning NaNoWriMo means you finish the 50,000 words, uh, and looked back at what I had and was like, this is not that bad, actually. And that was when I started to really work hard at, even if I thought it was stupid, I'm going to write the story. That's a, that's a huge, like a confidence thing that you kind of have to get over. Uh, and it sort of went from there. I just kept on plugging away, kept on writing things, kept on submitting things, and what did it kind of spark in you? You started getting that sort of feedback from it and that payoff. Oh, that was really amazing. That was really amazing. Uh, it was also tremendous to be able to find there are some critiquing communities on the Internet. Uh, there's one called Online Writing Workshop for science fiction and fantasy, if you Google it. Uh, they It costs, I think it's like $50 a year or something, but you can try it free for a month and they... Uh, you can submit your thing, your stories, and have people critique them. You can critique other people's stories. Uh, that's tremendously valuable. And uh, some of the folks I met doing that uh, encouraged me to apply for a workshop called Clarion West. There are a couple of workshops called Clarion, um, which is a really intensive six-week workshop. That was also tremendous. What that did was introduced me to uh, a certain number of folks who were uh, who had similar goals as mine and were willing to take my work seriously. And that was just tremendous. That was it makes such a huge difference. Uh, I think most people who really want to write are afraid that they're not good enough. Uh, are even just sitting down and putting words on the paper is frightening. And then when you've done it, a lot of people I've talked to are like, but I can't send it out because it's not very good. And the most valuable thing you can possibly get is folks who take you seriously as a writer, who, uh, who believe in what you're doing and who will support you through it. What happened after that then? Uh, so that then I, I finished the, the novel. Uh, it took me a long time. It so that was ancillary? That was ancillary justice, okay. yeah. And it took a really long time. And then, uh, and this is where things get, so every writer's course to selling their book, 
selling their first book is different. So if I give my story, it's not the only way or the way to do it. I just want to caution by saying that at first. Um, so what I did was at that point I had some friends who were uh, selling uh, really fabulous short fiction. Uh, some of their friends had sold books. So I went to them and I said, who are people's agents? What do people have to say about them? Uh, and then I spent some time researching agents who sold science fiction, uh, looking to see who they represented, who had sold things recently. And I made a list. I made a list of about 20 to start. And I said, I'm going to send to five agents one week, and the next week I'm going to send to five more, and the next week I'm going to send to five more. The nice thing about querying agents is you can query as many as you like. Uh, when you're sending out, at least in science fiction and fantasy, when you're sending out a novel, you can only send out to one place at a time, unless you're an agent. That's another. Um, so I sent out uh, and very quickly got responses back. Uh, and within a month or two, I had representation, which uh, astonished me. And I, w I felt bad for him. I was like, he's such a nice kid, and he's never going to see a dime from me. I don't know why he's even doing this, but that's all right. Uh, and so uh, he took the novel out on submission, and I thought, well, nothing's ever going to come of that. Within several months, there was interest from some editors, uh, and w shortly after that, I sold the novel to Orbit. It was really astonishing, and I felt bad for them. I thought, they're not... They're giving me this, they're cutting me a check, right? And that's just money down the drain for them. This, if I'm lucky, this book is going to sell, what, a couple thousand copies. Uh, Were you afraid to spend the money? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, w I wouldn't have had to give it back, right? Because the, the book was finished. But uh, I was like, this is never going to, they're never going to earn back what they, what they gave me. And then uh, the book came out, and the reaction absolutely astonished me absolutely astonished me. Not because I didn't believe in my book, because as a writer, one of the things that you learn very quickly is that there's so much rejection, you might as well write the thing you want to write, because writing the thing you think is going to sell doesn't guarantee that you're going to sell. But that you get one chance to sort of right. set that your own Right, that story course. would be out there. And mm. then later on, actually, I sold another story that uh, I didn't think was like it was, it's a perfectly good story. Uh, it's a perfectly cromulent story, as the kids say. Uh, but it's not my best work. And when it, I sold it, and uh, I found that when it came out, I didn't want to go out on my blog and tell people it was published. I'm not ashamed of that story, but I wasn't proud of that story. And those experiences taught me a lot. So when I sat down to write the novel, I said... I'm not going to worry about whether or not this is going to sell. I'm not going to worry about whether or not this is something that editors want because you don't know, for one thing. And secondly, why am I spending all this time on it and I don't like what I'm doing? If I can't stand behind it. Right. What's the point? Exactly. So what's your life like now? You are going to meet, the book came out in September, so you've had a couple of months now of meeting fans. You're going to see more tonight. What's it like to meet them in person? It's at a pretty intense Oh, it's really awesome. I have awesome readers. I don't. I was at a bookstore recently, and I said, I, "Are other writers 
do other writers have as awesome readers as I have? Because I have awesome readers, right? And they're like, yeah, usually they're. Um, but it's really, it's amazing to talk to folks. It's really amazing to hear people talk about, uh, sometimes they'll tell me that the book was important to them for some reason. Uh, a particular character will mean a lot to them or have helped them through something really difficult, uh, which, I mean, I didn't write the story to do that, but that's the best bonus in the world to have somebody say, this really helped me. Uh, and that's just, that's really amazing. But in a lot of ways, my life isn't really very different. Uh, I know when Ancillary Justice won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, which was really exciting and amazing, and I went to the store the next day and ran into somebody I knew, and, and they said, what? You do your own grocery shopping and you've won all these awards? And I was like, yeah, they don't come with, you know. <laughs> Personal assistance. Right, so. <laughs> yeah. That's true, because that really blew up your life. It did. It was astonishing. Way. But then I would go to the grocery store, and it would just be like, normal, right? My kids still had to get to school, I, you know. Uh, so it was very weird. It was this very weird disjoint. And you imagine, um, I'm not even that big a celebrity, you imagine celebrities as, a, you know, occupying this sort of, this higher sphere where their lives are so completely different. And you're like, but I'm just doing the laundry. I'm sitting here folding socks, <laughs> you know. Do your kids read your work? Are they sci-fi fans? Um, not so much. My daughter told me that she would read Ancillary Justice when it came out in Spanish, and it did, and then she backed down, although I think she does carry it around, and every now and then she looks at it. Uh, and my son doesn't either, although uh, I, I think they're both fairly, I know, uh, my son was in, I think, eighth grade when Ancillary Justice came out. Well, really, was it that long ago? And uh, I, he was just like, uh, it's, she's just my mom. You know, uh. Big deal. And I went into school and for the conference, and the, the one teacher says, oh, Gowan's told us all about your writing. And I was like, oh, all right. They're secret fans. Yeah. What, what are your habits in terms of work? And, and uh, do you outline? Do you? Oh, I do, not, I do not outline. I do not. I have an idea where I want to end up. And I have maybe some high points along the way, and the rest of it I have to figure out as I write, which is kind of frustrating. And I know my friends who outline and get really good results from it, they write much more quickly than I do. Um, but I have never been able to outline. Ideally, and this is only ideal, ideally, everybody goes out the door for their daily stuff, and I turn on the dishwasher and make some tea and go into my office and write until lunchtime. It, it, the, the reality, world. yeah, the reality is I get distracted by Twitter or somebody gets sick or, uh, you know, the fridge stops working and so I have to be the one to open the door for the repair guy or, you know, it, all those things that can get in the way, the things that can, that can get in the way of yourself. It's hard to sit in your office and know that there's laundry in the other room. This is a weird writer thing, right? You're like, oh, I really want to write. And then I hate doing laundry. I don't like doing laundry. I, as soon as I sit down to write... I have to do the laundry. The kitchen floor is dirty. I have to do those things before I can write. Right? There's a weird psychological thing, right? Uh, and so that's, that's very difficult. Uh, so I, I have my ideal, but I don't always stick to my ideal. But fortunately, by, the, by my deadline, more or less, I have a manuscript, and that's what counts in the end. Yeah. I always joke that the only time my house gets cleaned is when I have a deadline. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the only time I suddenly seem to care about things Absolutely. that I've been ignoring for weeks. Right, exactly. That's so true. Uh, what's it like when it is clicking for you? I know every writer, every creative person has their moments where it's just happening and then it's just not. What's it feel like for you when it is clicking and you're it's, tapping It's in? its own thing. It's, 
it really feels good because it feels very frustrating and painful when it's hard, which it is hard most days. Uh, I think the, the idea that one is inspired to write and you write only when you're inspired in some ways is a little bit uh, unhelpful because nine times out of ten you're sitting there at the desk banging your head on the keyboard going, oh God, I can't even write a plain sentence, right? I just need to get this horse from this end of the street to the other end of the street and I can't do that. Uh, and it's very, it's very difficult. Uh, and most of the time it's like that. And then, boom, it just comes right out of your fingers and that's really amazing when it happens, but that's not all the time. You've always given a ton of credit to libraries and talked about what a huge role that plays. Oh, your libraries are fabulous. Libraries are so wonderful. I don't know where we would be without libraries. Yeah. And that's what nurtured your Oh, well, I was uh, I actually grew up in South St. Louis over by Tower Grove Park, uh, and I was at the Carpenter Branch Library almost every weekend pulling books off the shelf, reading what I could find over in the grown-up section when maybe I wasn't supposed to be, uh, and just reading everything because I was a kid who read. Do you feel like you kind of grew up in a golden era of, of sci-fi fiction, too? and of In some ways, filmmaking? I did. The 70s were really... Uh, there were some amazing writers, many of whom people don't necessarily talk about anymore. Uh, who people, Joanna Russ, uh, C.J. Cherry, the the folks who were coming out with stuff in the '70s. It was amazing. Uh, at the time, it just felt like I was finding books at the library, right? Right. Yeah. You weren't defining it as I'm a fan of this or that. No, uh-uh. Yeah. You get asked a lot about women in science fiction, and you're sort of asked to be a spokesperson for it in many ways. Uh, is that good, or, uh, or do you long for a time when that's not an issue? That's such a complicated issue. Um, because on the one hand, I totally understand the, look, I'm just a science fiction writer, why are you asking me about my gender? On the other hand, it's, it's an issue, right? Uh, and I keep hoping, because as I said, women have been writing science fiction since science fiction existed. Uh, but every 10 or 20 years, people go, oh, look, there's all these women writing science fiction. Isn't that a new thing? Look, here's so-and-so. I'm like, well, Mary Shelley, right? Like, basically invented it. And uh, so that is kind of frustrating. But I'm glad that the attention is sort of coming around, saying, look, there are lots of women reading and lots of women writing, and always have been. Thank you, Anne Lucky, so much for talking with us. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. That's Hugo, Nebula, and Arthur C. Clarke award-winning science fiction writer Anne Leckie on her life as an author and woman in science fiction. We spoke with her in December of 2017, shortly after the release of her fourth book in her ancillary universe, Provenance. Since then, she's released another non-ancillary book, The Raven Tower, all of which are from publisher Orbit. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host of the video version of this program was Brenda Madden. Photography was by Cecil Corbett and Chris Cross. The editor and graphics were by Greg Kopp. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. ATC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors Podcast Executive Producer is Christina Chastain. The Podcast Editor was Ben Smith. And I'm Rod Milam, your Podcast Producer and Host. Special thanks to Maryville University, St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU, and Tech Artista. 
Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media.